Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me for freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phelps. I got a good show for you this week. We're going to get ready for the Knicks season. That's right. The NBA starts next week. I'm going to be joined today by Mike Workinoff of The Athletic, the Knicks beat reporter there. We're going to talk about the New York Knicks. A lot of changes there. New head coach, new front office, some new draft picks, a lot of the same roster. We'll talk about what's going on there. We're going to do our Week 15 NFL picks as well. I'm going to be joined by Giants fan Justin Diaz, a favorite of mine on this podcast. Talk about what went wrong for the Giants last week, What's going, what they could look forward to this week with the Browns coming to town after they got flexed into Sunday night. A must-win game for the Giants. We will talk about that as well. Make sure you lock in until the end of the show for this week's special Mandalorian recap. I'm going to be joined by Alan Austin, our, one of our pop culture team. We're going to talk about Episode 7, Chapter 15, The Believer. One more episode left until the finale, so we're going to set ourselves up for that recap. It's going to be a special bonus episode coming over the weekend. But we'll get it all started with our opening tip with my thoughts on the Knicks right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here, opening tip time, talking New York Knicks basketball, and it's been a rough time to be a Knicks fan. Not a lot's gone right. A lot of losing. This year, though, a little interesting. Shorter year, but a new regime coming in. Leon Rose running the show, World Wide West helping out, and they've taken a different approach to the offseason. First off, they did get you an established coach to hire Tom Thibodeau, and they made you think, you know what, we're going to win right now. We won not a lot of games the last two years. We're going to try and be more competitive. They drafted like it. I mean, they got Obi Toppin, who was one of the top college basketball players last year, number eight. He's going to contribute right away. Emmanuel Quickly from Kentucky has a clear role in this team as a 3 and D guy. But the interesting thing was when they got to the offseason, when they got to free agency, they did not do what they did a year ago when – they tried to go for big stars. They couldn't get any. They got snubbed by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and said, you know what? We have to spend all this money right now. Like it was burning a hole in uh, in their pockets. So they just went and signed a bunch of power forwards. They spent all their money, didn't collect any assets, and it was an ill-fitting roster, did not work well. This year did not do that. They could have made a play for Fred Van Vliet, but Fred Van Vliet gave the Raptors a discount. And they said, you know, we're not going to overpay for Fred Van Vliet. They did not burn all their cash base on veterans like they did last year. They did not trade a bunch of assets to get Russell Westbrook in here to say, you know, we're going to make this team be a star attraction by bringing in one star who's a little past his prime overpaid. They didn't do that for Chris Paul either. It was not a good fit for them. Chris Paul goes to Phoenix, a better fit there for a team that needs that veteran presence to try and win. The Knicks are still far, far away from that. They were in the mix for Gordon Hayward. Once Charlotte offered four years, $120 million, they said, no, thank you. Not going to overpay for Gordon Hayward. 
What they did was smarter. They were able to make some trades. They picked up some extra draft picks. They got Ed Davis for about five minutes. Picked up a second round pick to get him. Picked up another one plus two more players to get rid of him. So good job on the Knicks there. They brought in some guys to fill the rotation that were better fits. Guys like your Austin Rivers, your Alec Burks, your Nerlens Noels, your MKGs, Elfrey Payton coming back. Like, instead of creating a roster of about 19 power forwards that are going to all compete with Mitchell Robinson's playing time, now they have guys who fit this roster better. The cap sheet's clean. They have a chance to let some of these young guys develop on this roster that's more balanced. And the balanced roster will help because... We've heard all last year was R.J. Barrett very good. We need to see him with some NBA-level spacing on the floor. There's more spacing this year. It's not quite to that level yet, but you think he'll be better with Tom Thibodeau. It's a big year for him, big year for Obi Toppin, rookie. Big year for Kevin Knox. A lot of these guys here. The plus be nice, I will say that. But given the talents on this roster, it's not reasonable. They want to be more competitive than Knicks. They want to see some progress in the young guys. Get a little lotto luck. You know, maybe this is the year you, the ping pong ball come out your way. You land K Cunningham at the first pick. If not, get a guy in the top three, four, who could be another key stud. You want to try and do the, what the Nets deal. Build that young core of exciting young guys that, sit, that attracts the attention of the big free agents. I know John has signed the Supermax this week, and that's something the Knicks fans are at the long shot pipe saying, hey, he'll come to New York. That's not going to happen. It was never going to happen. At the same time, you can make yourself attractive to the next crop of stars coming out and say, you know what, like, I can come to New York and be the piece that puts the Knicks over the top. I can be that guy that just comes in and takes this team from being a 35-win team to a 50-win team. Or a 40-win team to a 55-win team. The Super Bowl doesn't want to come here and say, I'm coming to the team's won 20 games and go win 50. They don't want to do all the work themselves. Even if they can bring a buddy with them. You need to get enough of the roster in place to make this attractive situation here. It'll take some time. It looks like for now they finally figured out, you know what, we can't do the quick fix. We have to build and develop and draft and develop the talent and make the roster more attractive naturally instead of going for the quick fix. That's encouraging. I think they're going the right direction. We'll talk more about the Knicks in just a minute with Mike Borkanov of The Athletic right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Cause it's basketball of Mr. Kirch's flow. Back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, talking New York Knicks basketball with the Knicks beat reporter for the Athletic, Mike Workinoff, rocking the athletic hat here on the Zoom call. Mike, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. I'd say it's a lot of fun to talk to you. I read your coverage all the time on the Athletic. There's a lot of good stuff on the Knicks. Ah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. I got to say, it's definitely been an interesting offseason for the Knicks with the, with the whole change of the front office, the Leon Rose regime, Tom Thibodeau being hired. What do you think of those two change choices the Knicks made to sort of rebuild the franchise? Uh, you know, the Leon Rose thing, you know, the hire is kind of a blank slate. I don't really know what to make of it. He has, you know, he has no history as an executive, right? I don't know if he'll be good, if he'll be bad. I I just don't know. And I don't know if that sounds like a cop-out or not. But, like, 
um, there's nothing to go off. And it's not as if, a, a, you know, hiring an agent is kind of this fix all um, for the teams that have done it, because that's a mixed record in the past, too. And uh, I guess we'll see in time just kind of the we, we still don't really know what his plan is for the organization either. You know, he's pretty much been, um, you know, <laughs> he, he's been uh, ducking the media since he's gotten hired. I think he's spoken, I want to say once in the nine months since he got the job. Uh, as for Thibodeau, I think it'll be good. You know, he's a really good coach. I think there's some, you know, the, the, I don't want to call them pro problems, but there have been issues in his career um, and as, as a coach and more so as an executive, but he doesn't have to be an executive with the Knicks. He's just a coach. And, you know, especially for this year when the team is young, the team is not expected to be, to be very good. He'll have them competitive on a night to night basis. Like that doesn't mean they'll be good, but it means that they should – be in close games and they should, you know, get better. And, you know, when you need someone to develop the young talent that the Knicks have, I, I think that, um, you know, that should suit him well and the staff that they've put together. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I feel like people pan that Thibodeau hires as, oh, he's not the, the the way the NBA is going. He's a bit of a dinosaur. I do think that was a good fit because this is a team that doesn't really hire, like, proven coaches. I feel like he's a guy who gives you a nice track record. Yeah, I, I agree. Um He's got, you know, he's the most, the most important thing is like for all his faults as a coach and you can look through his time in Minnesota and Chicago and, and parse those. Um, I think everyone kind of agrees. He's a good coach uh, and it helps to have a good coach. Um, and I think it helps to have someone who can teach, who can uh, motivate and especially for a young team, um, just Teach him about the NBA, basically. Um, I think those <laughs> things are undervalued. Yeah, I definitely think they are. And I do like what they did this offseason. I remember last year they struck out on Durant and Irving. Then they signed just 19 power forwards to try and use up all the cap space. This year, I feel like they've made a better job just utilizing their assets, getting guys to sort of fit the roster better. What do you make of their offseason? I think it was... Uh... It wasn't like impressive. I also don't think it was disastrous. Um, it does seem, you know, they got players who fit a little more than last off season, right. They didn't sign four power forwards this time. I like Alec Burks. I think he should help, but he should help the spacing. He gives him a shooter, a scorer, some a guy who can provide some offensive pop uh, compared to the guys that they signed last off season. You know, Austin rivers should help once he gets healthy um, at least kind of provide like competent, backcourt play uh, really is the best way I would put it. And, you know, if they want to, they can kind of put lineups out there that space the floor a little bit more around RJ Barrett and, uh, and Mitchell Robinson uh, than they could last season. It's marginal additions. I don't think it's anything huge, but at least it's a marginal improvement instead of uh, getting worse. Right. You know, yeah. yeah, really, they still need to get better shooters. They need to get more shooters. They need to get more talent all those types of things, but they maintain their cap space. They still have 18 million or so remaining and they added a few draft picks. Um, and so I, I would say, you know, on the net, it was a, a net positive off season, but I'm not going to say like it was this great off season or anything, but then again, um, you know, a quiet, a quiet uh, competency is a good thing for the Knicks. Yeah, there's been a lot of times he's been quietly competent, even just competent in general. But I'm talking about working off of the athletic here. And you mentioned Mitchell Robinson. One thing that caught my eye in the preseason game that came the other day was that he wasn't in the starting lot. They put Nerlens Noel in at the five instead of him. Do you think that's something we should watch? And Mitchell Robinson see if he has to fight for his playing time again? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think not just like does he have to fight for his playing time, it's is he worthy of being a starting player, you know? He didn't start as a rookie. He didn't start as a, a second-year player. And if he doesn't start as a third-year player, you, you have to wonder what's going on there. 
Um, it can't just be this grand conspiracy against him. Um, and, you know, especially the Knicks, you know, he could hit, they could decide to have him hit restricted free agency this offseason, this upcoming offseason, 2021. He'll, if not, he'll definitely hit unrestricted free agency in 2022. Um, so they have to see what they got. And Mitchell Robinson has to, you know, progress too as a player, um, you know, especially offensively. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there at the center spot. And, um, you know, if, if Nerland's Noel, starts the season as a Knicks starter at center, uh, that would be eye-raising, I think, a little bit. Yeah, I think it would be, too. And you mentioned R.J. Barrett, too. And we heard all last year about how, like, oh, he'll be better in the NBA if he has spacing around. They did a little better in that regard. But how much of a big difference, I think, like, Tom Thibodeau and what they're doing year two could have on R.J.'s season? I think a lot. I mean, part of it is help is just, you know, the fact that he's in a second, second season, there's natural growth there, right? When guy, when, when rookies uh, transition to their second year, they're supposed to get better. You know, the league, you've gotten bigger, stronger, smarter, all those types of things. And if the, you know, Tom Thibodeau for all his uh, track record as like kind of defensive coaches, put together some pretty good offenses over the course of his career. Um, he's, you know, he doesn't have like a, let's say like a clear cut philosophy. He's not, you know, he's not playing Nelly ball. He's not Mike D'Antoni or something like that, but like they've put together some pretty good offenses uh, his teams have. And so I find, I think he'll probably find a way to put RJ Barrett in good spots and, uh, and to profit offensively off of them. Yeah. I think obviously you mentioned the offseason in terms of veterans is quiet, but they made the two big picks in the first round, Obi top and Manuel quickly out of Kentucky. And what kind of roles do you think those two could get in year one? Do you think we'll see a lot of both guys? I think we'll see a lot of Obi Toppin. Um, he's number eight pick. He's 22. He's comes in as the college player of the year. Uh, if, if he's not playing a lot, something's gone wrong. Um, I, I don't know how much we'll see of Emmanuel quickly. Um, part of it is that, you know, the Knicks are thin in the backcourt on like talent, but they have a lot of quantity. So it's just, can he beat those players out um, for minutes? And obviously the 25th overall pick is not like usually where you come in and find a contributor right away. So I don't know what the expectations should be high for quickly, but I think for Toppin, you know, I, you know, I know a lot of places I've seen, he's kind of like the presumptive rookie of the year favorite. Uh, I don't know how that'll work out. Cause he's got Julius Randall in front of him on the, on the depth chart, but you know, that might work itself out uh, around the trade deadline or the course of the season or something like that. So yeah, I expect to see a lot of Toppin. Yeah, I know you mentioned that front court rotation. I know that it's a little thinner now because they got rid of some guys. They still have Randall. They still have Noel. They have Robinson, Toppin, or talk that Knox could be a small ball for. Like, how do you think that rotation sorts itself out in terms of the front court? You know, they don't have that many guys. You know, they have um, essentially four guys at the power forward and center spot, and just the very bigs in the in the front court. And uh, I, I think we've seen already. Tom Thibodeau experimenting with playing Obi Toppin and Julius Randle together at, you know, power forward and center. So there's a willingness to play small. And uh, I, I think you can probably make that work and split 96 minutes between those guys, uh, those four guys, um, and, and make sure that everyone gets their allotted time and also find ways to get some offensive spark and sometimes play defensive lineups. Yeah. And also, you know, we, I mean, the big backdrop of this is this whole scene is, season is playing out in a pandemic. Um, We've seen from baseball, we've seen from football, inevitably something will happen. Um, there will be, unfortunately, uh, COVID will probably hit the Knicks at some point um, and they'll have to deal with depth issues and they'll have to um, find, you know, find ways to cover up for players that they're missing. And, and so I, I think having more guys uh, is better this season than having less. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And I do think also in terms of their roster, there's also that whole category of like the high lottery picks who haven't lived up to expectations with like Kevin Knox, Frank Nittalakina, and Dennis Smith Jr. Like it's sort of the last gasp for all three guys where you could see like if they have bad years, the next can move off from all of them. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, look, the, uh, the Knicks still have to pick up the fourth-year option on Kevin Knox. Um, I think the deadline is coming up in the next few weeks. And uh, Neil Akina and Densmith Jr. are set to be free agents this offseason as their rookie contracts run out. Uh, I don't think that either one of them have kind of, uh, you know, have made the Knicks, like, assure that they should be a part of their future. And Neil Akina especially – was drafted by Phil Jackson, um, played through the Steve Mills era, is now under Leon Rose, who used to be his agent. So, like, it, there's been a lot of changeover for him over his career, and he's several administrations removed now from the people who drafted him. So, yeah, uh, it's a it's a proving ground type of season for those guys. It doesn't feel like this is one of those things they have to get better on. I think I read somewhere, I don't know if it was one of your pieces or not, but they, I think they haven't been able to sign, like, a first-round pick to a second contract since Charlie Ward, which seems, like, way too long. And I think they got to get better at that. Yeah, I mean, you just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought Kristaps Porzingis was going to be that guy, and then now he's in Dallas. Um, yeah, part of it is just bad drafting, bad management, all those types of things. Um, and uh, I don't know what else to say. I think that's that kind of, like, just just uh, talks for itself. And, like, the key to any good franchise usually is just being able to draft and develop and keep your good young players. Yeah, it's certainly true. And obviously, even though they've gotten slightly better, like I think most of us will agree that the playoffs are not realistic for the Knicks. So like what would you say to a Knicks fan right now? Like, if this happens this year, this is a successful season for them. I think it's just like if you see growth and improvement from the main three guys, which is uh um from Obi Toppin, RJ Barrett, and uh Mitchell Robinson, you know, like those are the kind of foundational pieces for the franchise at the moment. And um, that more than anything else, just their improvement um, is what's so vital to their, to the Knicks growth as a franchise. Um, Just knowing, you know, like, okay, these guys are young. They're good. We have them under control for a few years and we can go forward with them. And uh, I guess alternatively, if at least they know that one of those guys is not going to be a part of the future, that's, that's something too. Yeah, it's sort of like what happened with like the Jets a little bit also, like where it's like, oh, like we need to find out if, the, if Sam Darnold's the quarterback. If you at least find out, okay, maybe Mitchell Robinson isn't what we thought he is, that's a little at least it's something. Right, exactly. Um you you know, I, I think Seth Partnow, uh, who works for us as like a basketball genius, uh explained in one of these days in the conversation that we had about the Knicks, you know, like uh, essentially this season is about figuring out who you should go with and also about which players disqualify themselves about being a part of your future. Yeah. We've also seen them fast. Like I say, it feels like every other off season, they sort of saving the cap room, trying to get the big free ends. They don't come. Then they sort of recycle again. Do you think we're going to end up heading towards the same direction next, next summer? Or you think is going to be a, maybe let's take the do with the Brooklyn Nets. They let's build the core up first and then make it easier to sell these guys saying, Hey, like, Superstar X, you can come here, turn a 40-win team to a 50-win team as opposed to going, I have a 17-win team. I'm going to ask you to make it a 50-win team. I think that's sort of more realistic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think so too. I, I think like at some point, you just got to be a good competitive franchise who's you know shows that you can win games and develop players and all those things. And then uh, that'll make you attractive uh, to a star player more so than just being New York, right? Like we've seen being New York doesn't work. Um, player, good players want to go to good teams where they're not doing, you know, a large haul to make the teams even better. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I want to thank you, Mike, for taking all the time today for hopping on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people uh, follow you on Twitter and subscribe to The Athletic and keep up all your coverage? Uh, you know, uh, theathletic.com uh, slash Knicks is a good place to start. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, uh, now's a pretty good time to start. It's going to be an interesting 2020-21 season. And, uh, you know, we cover every NBA team and pretty much like every North American sport and some English soccer and European soccer, if you're into that, which I am. Um, and if you're sus- subscribed already, thank you. And I'm at, you know, uh, Mike at Mike Borkanoff on Twitter. And um, I guess follow me there. If not, I get it. Uh, there's no reason to go to Twitter if you don't have to. Yeah, I, I'm already an athletic subscriber. I read your stuff every day when it comes out at the Knicks. I, and it's a good read. I recommend to everybody. Mike, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, and there you have it. That was Mike Vorkanov of The Athletic talking New York Knicks basketball. Definitely a fun season for the Knicks. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with them. I know they're not going to the playoffs. I know Mike told you, hey, like, this is going to be a year where we see what happens with the young guys, what happens with our with our kids, see how they develop. I think that will be fun. We'll see what happens with the Knicks. But up next, we're going to do our Week 15 NFL picks with Justin Diaz right after this. Show me the money. All right, we are back. Show me the money. NFL picks for week number 15 on the podcast. Joining me today, a good old-fashioned New York Giants fan. We talked to him back in October. We were debating which franchise in worse shape. I think it's become unquestionably clear that mine is in worse shape. Justin Diaz here. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. Yes, the the teams have taken two different paths. Um, But I will say, at least you're getting Trevor Lawrence and you'll have a boatload of cap space. It's not all terrible. End games will be gone. Not guaranteed on Lawrence yet. We still have to lose three more games. That's guaranteed. I think that's guaranteed. They're they're the worst team I've ever seen. (laughs) And I don't even think it's close. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the 0-16 Lions were putrid as were the 0-16 Browns. But the Jets have been in how many games? Reasonably, can you say, two? The Raiders game and, well, the Raiders, they, they not only were they in it, they won until a pathetic last-second collapse. But I feel like that that's it, really, right? Is there, is there another one that they actually had a chance past the second quarter? I think New England in Week 9, and I think Denver Week 4, the three, you would have said they, they had a shot right. in. Other than that, no. Yeah, that's that. That's not having a chance in basically every single game. That that's difficult to pull off. Yeah, I mean the Charger game was ended close. They were down like twenty points at halftime. That was just one of the Chargers trying to charge it up, and they almost and they almost did it. Yeah, the Chargers have that innate ability to blow games that they easily should win. Yeah, not talking about my team. I was talking about your team because I I came in the last. I got some my hopes. I said, you know what, the Giants are playing well. They're the big win in Seattle. Then they come out. The offense lays a complete egg against Arizona. I'm sure so when you're watching this game, you were getting very frustrated. What was your takeaway from that game? So I will say I've been pounding the Giants and Gettleman for three years now. On this podcast, many of those times, they are significantly better than I, I saw, much better than I really thought they even had the ability to be. Um, I, they're still a bad football team. The defense is solid. Sometimes it, it elevates them very good. But they're not dominant like people want to think. I, I for one, after that Seahawks game, how could you not think they're dominant? But they're still not a, a they're not on the level of the Rams defense, the Saints defense, the Steelers defense when, when all their guys are healthy, but their linebackers are dropping like flies. 
they're a solid defense that bends but doesn't break. They they're, they buckle down in the red zone incredibly well. Uh, they they stopped with so many drives that were started because of a, a turnover or the offense just not being able to do anything. But my takeaway from the Cardinals game is that offense is horrendous. Daniel Jones clearly wasn't healthy. Uh, he has, still has no pocket awareness. That, that's just not happening at this point. He still doesn't have that clock in his head where it, it, it's time to get rid of the ball. But also the offensive line is horrible and gave him no chance. So, I mean, it's, it's a bad team that can, the defense can carry them to keep stay in the game. And if the offense can make a couple of plays, they'll have a chance. But I fully expect them to lose these next two games against the Browns and Ravens. And then the Cowboys game, I think they should win because the Cowboys are terrible, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Giants lost out and, and finished 5-11. and 11. So there's all this going in the right direction. The Gettleman saved the day. No, this is still a very bad team. Three years into your reign, if all you could say is I built a solid defense with a horrendous offense that's the worst in the league. And I guess I mean the worst in the league because I don't consider the Jets a national football league team. <laughs> uh, you did a terrible job. Three years is not, you don't get three full years to, to build a bad team and say, wow, great job. Nope, get out of here, gentlemen. Go retire. Uh, and I don't care what you do after that. Yeah, I think watching that game, the thing that stuck out to me was just that. I don't think they should let Daniel Jones play that game. He couldn't protect himself. You could tell the hamstring still bothering him. He got sacked six times. He still has those are the turnovers. I mean, to me, I think, like, unless Daniel Jones is healthy, I don't think you can put him out there on side. I know they will, but, I mean, you're trying to win. If you're trying to win the division, you need the quarterback to be 100%. Yeah, I, I agree that he clearly wasn't healthy. And when he can't run, he's terrible. I mean, that's his, his biggest strength is his athleticism and his ability to do the run fight, the RPO get him out in the open field, and then that helps open things up in the passing game. Um, I mean, there are quarterbacks. Like, I think that this is a long time ago, but obviously I'm not comparing Daniel Jones and Aaron Rodgers, but Aaron Rodgers is a very mobile quarterback. There's one year, I want to say it's 2015, where he hurt his hamstring pretty badly, uh, but he obviously played because if you're a quarterback, you can play with a hurt hamstring. It's just going to be a lot harder. He's still dominant because he's an amazing pocket passer. But there was that element where, all right, this isn't quite the Aaron Rodgers because he's not escaping as easily. Daniel Jones stinks if he can't move. It, 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 he, he can't. He just still fumbles the ball. If he can't get out of the pocket, that just eliminates his biggest strength. So I agree from a purely football standpoint. I mean, Colt McCoy, the, the, other, the issue is Colt McCoy is horrible. But yeah, people want to say, I've heard people say they're better with Colt McCoy than this version of Daniel Jones. It's not like they lit up the Seahawks. But they won that game because the defense was unbelievably dominant and they made Russell Wilson look terrible. I don't think in a game where they actually need the offense to score, you can honestly say, well, yeah, Colt McCoy gives us our, great, our best chance. The guy doesn't have an NFL arm. Like he, I, good for him for coming in and playing solid. He, he did it about as much as you can expect. I can't honestly sit here and say Colt McCoy is definitely the better option than Daniel Jones. Other than the fact, the only argument I can reasonably see is maybe Colt McCoy won't turn the ball over, whereas Jones is almost a guarantee, especially when he can't get out of the pocket. Yeah, that's true. And this week, you feel like with them, I think if they have any realistic hope to make the playoffs, they have to win this week. They have to beat the Browns because considering the schedule Washington has, when they still have to play 
Carolina, and a very consistent Eagles team. The Giants had to get the seven wins, and they have to find a way to get one of these two games here. I think the Brown game is more dual logic because they're at home. I, I agree. I can't see them beating the Ravens. The, the Ravens' defense is – well, they didn't play well Monday night, but their defense for the most part has been excellent this year. Uh, I, I don't see the Giants beating the Browns. I don't think it's impossible. If you asked me earlier in the year, I would have said, yes, it's impossible. But again, I have to be objective and, and fair. The Giants are much better than I thought they would. I think they do have a chance to win this game. I, Browns are a good team, but I mean, they're, they're a run-heavy team, and the Giants' run defense has been very good. So if they can slow down that piece, and Baker's been better lately. I'm, I'm still not completely sold. He's a guy you can say, go out there and win us this game. Uh, on a consistent basis. So, but again, the, the Giants offense is so inept that I just, if, if they fall behind in the first half or early on in the game and they need the offense to make some big plays, that just hasn't been happening. So, I do think the Browns will win and that'll pretty much dash the Giants' playoff hopes. Although, the Redskins, uh, excuse me, the Washington football team, they aren't, they're, they're playing better, but I still can't. I think their schedule, let me take a look. It's the Seahawks, fully expect the Seahawks to beat them. Panthers, I would expect the Washington to win, but I, I, the Washington's still not at that point where I'm going to say, yes, they will win that game against almost anyone. They're, they're still not a good team. They're, they're better than they were, but I, I, could, I could see the Panthers beating them, and I could also see the Eagles beating the Washington. So that, that's what the NFC team is at this point. It's a bunch of bad teams. The Giants and Washington have been playing better. But I, it's so hard to make predictions because these teams are ultimately bad teams that, yes, they can beat some good teams, which is better than we thought earlier in the season. But I could see, uh, let's see, the Giants, yeah, so if, the, if Washington loses out, the Giants could be playing for the NFC East to get uh, by getting to six wins, which would be honestly pathetic. But it's, it's very—it's not only possible; it's actually—it's—it's uh, it's very realistic. Football in twenty twenty, man. I tell, I tell you. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of football in twenty twenty, I was obviously checking out that Monday night game between the between the between the Ravens and the Browns because I was saying, okay, Giants next two opponents, see how this goes, and it's one of those things where you're watching the game, and you're like. Do these two teams play the same sport that the Giants and the Jets do? Because this is not the kind of football I recognize. I know, right? Yeah. Teams, explosive plays, like exciting quarterback play. Yeah, we're playing uh, checkers while they're playing chess. That's yeah. a terrible analogy. But no, it's no, that's, that's a good analogy. I will say <laughs> that's a good analogy because like, <laughs> it's, it's very, very pointed and one thing that came out of the game is very interesting. I want to get your take on this. Obviously, we had the heroics from Lamar Jackson. He leaves the game. He comes back. Do you think, given the circumstances and the information we know, do you think this was actually a drop a deuce situation or an actual cramping situation? Hundred <laughs> percent. He had to go to the bathroom. There's no <laughs> doubt. Like when you look, when you saw the video of him in the tunnel and he waved away the guy, you're not rushing to get to the the stretching table because your hamstring hurts. That's because you're scared you're about to poop your pants on national TV. No doubt in my mind you had to go to the bathroom. But what's your take on that situation? I'm inclined to agree with you there. I know he's going to deny it because obviously you don't want to admit that. But as WF fans Craig Carton pointed out, you can get treated for cramps on the field. I mean, the only way you're going in is you need the IV and it's that bad. But at the same time, like, he came out of the locker room very free and easy for a guy who was supposedly cramping. 
and he jogged to the locker room. If he was cramping, <laughs> am I right? I, I'm yeah. pretty sure he jogged to the locker room. Yeah, I think that and the shoe change probably helped. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's one of those things that's initially embarrassing to admit, but I think one time passes and the offseason comes up, he'll be on like an interview with one of his friends or a media person he's comfortable with, and he's just going to admit it. But that's what happened with Paul Pierce. He didn't admit it until, what, the next year? Yeah, that's true also. I mean, this is like... I don't think it's going to rise to the fame levels of the flu game with Michael Jordan, but, you know, we might be talking about the poop game down the line. <laughs> poop game. Yeah. Lamar Jackson's poop game is what brought him back to the uh, MVP level that we grew to know last year. Yeah, it, it did. And let's let's go ahead. Let's get to the picks. There's a reason why you're here. My friend Will Schneiderhan was here last week, unofficial co-host of the podcast. He went 1-2 and two on the week. He did take... The Dallas Cowboys laying a three and a half against the Bengals. They won that one going away. Yet he laid the seven with the Chiefs, got a bad beat as the Dolphins came back and covered. He also had the Browns getting the point and a half. And this is one where Lamar coming back from the bathroom probably cost him dearly in that one. <laughs> yeah, if he just had the runs that were unfixable, and it's obviously kind of crazy to think about how much can ride on someone's bowel movement. Yeah. If he just was stuck in the bathroom, then he would have the, the Ravens season literally would be over. They, they needed to win that game. So Yeah, because at that point, also, Trace McSorley hurt his knee and couldn't play. So if Lamar could not come out of the locker room, they had no quarterback for that fourth and five. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So Pepto-Bismol. Lamar Jackson could probably get a massive advertising deal with Pepto-Bismol now. Just say, yeah, I took Pepto, and I led my team back to the playoffs. If they win the Super Bowl... Pepto Bismol literally altered an entire multi-billion dollar organization for the National Football League. Yeah. Think about that. Pepto Bismol, get it off. Two tablets. This is true. Cook. Yeah, so they were one <laughs> so he, he wanted to look. I also went one and two. I, I laid the seven with the Saints. They did they didn't show up in the first half that caused against the Eagles. I laid the one and a half with the Texans and they got buried by the Bears. I did bet on the football team getting the three and a half against the Niners. They won outright. So one and two on the week for me. All right, it happens. I mean, who the heck saw the Eagles being the Saints either? That was very surprising. Yeah, and ironically, both the wins from the picks last week came out of the NFC East. So, again, 2020 football. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> On the year, Team Challengers is 22-19-1. I am 26-16, and 16, so good year so far. Trying to keep it going. Justin, you as the guest are going to be up first with your picks. Where are you going with pick number one? I'm taking the Chargers plus three and a half home against Vegas. I just like, uh, I think the Chargers are coming off a good week. I like, I love Justin Herbert. He's amazing. Uh, one of the best rookie quarterbacks we've seen in quite some time. I just like them to, to cover in that and keep that a close game. Next, I'm going with the Packers. One second. One second. And a half. Hold on, Justin. I'm going to say sure. with the Charger pick, I will say this is a team I normally avoid taking like hell, but. I love the hook here, considering how terrible the Raiders' defense has been. I think it's a good choice. Yeah, I mean, they, can, they shouldn't have beaten the Jets. No, <laughs> I don't think I need to say anymore. <laughs> sorry, okay. All right, pick, uh, pick two. Next, I'm, take, I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, next, I'm taking the Packers, excuse me, Packers minus eight and a half home against the Panthers. I just think the Packers is going to roll over them. Their offense is just clicking. Aaron Rodgers is probably played his way into the MVP, although it's between him and Mahomes that'll come down to the wire and be a close vote. But yeah, I, I just think the Packers are going to roll over the Panthers pretty easily. 
Hey, better you take the Packers than me, because they're 0-2 when I touch them this year. My friend Joe will be mad if I take the Packers again, so I'll let you do it this week. Uh, apologies to Joe if this podcast is a jinx against the Packers, but that's what I'm going with. All right, pick number three. Where are you going? I'm taking the Dolphins minus two and a half, uh, hosting the Patriots. I was surprised to see that the line is that low as we spoke about briefly before we, we got on air. I just think the Patriots, uh, Bill Belichick's done a commendable job keeping them competitive within uh, the amount of injuries they've had, but all this COVID um, before the season, a lot of their guys just sat out the year, decided to not play this year because of COVID. But Cam Newton is just completely done. He, he physically can't throw the ball consistently at all anymore. Their offense is terrible. Uh, the Dolphins' defense has been fantastic. I just expect them to fully shut down what the Patriots try and do, which is basically just a, it's almost like a high school offense at this point. Just get Cam and the running back to run and throw quick dump passes. But I think the Dolphins are just going to shut them down. And I like the way Tua has been playing lately. He's looked a lot better. He seems to be coming on and growing into that role. Yeah, interesting pick there. I think the one counter you can make to that is obviously Belichick has a track record of stymieing rookie quarterbacks in these big game plans. He had 10 days to get ready for two. I feel like he might have some wrinkles in there, but otherwise I can see the logic in it. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, he completely shuts down uh, the Chargers and Justin Herbert. But I, I think the Dolphins defense and the special teams, they've been scoring a lot on both of those sides of the ball. So I think they'll easily shut down the Patriots offense, maybe even get like a pick six or a fumble return for a touchdown or two, and, and they'll score enough on offense to, to make this game not, I don't even think it'll be competitive. So that, that's my pick. Those are my picks. All right, I'm going up now. Pick number one. I'm going to take the one I feel is the safest pick on the board. I'm going to take the Buccaneers laying six in Atlanta against the Falcons. This is one where I'm looking at this and I'm like, what exactly is Atlanta playing for in this game? They have no motivation to play this game. They went out west, suffered a brutal loss to the Chargers. Julio Jones then banged up all year. Tampa Bay going for a division title. Uh, not a division title. They have a chance to actually make the playoffs the first time in two, since 2007. They play well off the bye against Minnesota. Their defense will shut Atlanta down. I'm laying less than a touchdown on the road. I'll take it. Give me the Buccaneers minus six, pick one. Totally agree. I, I think that's, that's an easy one where the Bucs will just win, most dominate the game start to finish. All right, that's pick one. Pick two. I'm going to go to all the points. I'm going to take the Rams laying the 17 against the Jets. And I've been picking against the Jets all year, so now highly successful strategy. Laid off last week was a mistake because the Seahawks completely blew him out of the water. Greg Williams, the going was the last straw for that defense. I think they quit on Adam Gase last week. They did not play very well aside from Marcus May and, and Foley Fodakasi. Going out to the Rams this week, 10 days to get ready for the Jets that they don't need. Aaron Donald's going to destroy their offensive line. San Donald's running for his life. This game's going to get ugly once again. The Rams are a much better football team than the Jets. The last two games against good teams on the road, they lost 35-9 to the Chiefs and 40-3 to the Seahawks. That's easily covering 17. Give me the Rams and the points, pick two. Yeah, that, that's going to be an ugly game. I, I feel bad for Sam Darnold, honestly. Uh, but this is just a disaster waiting to happen. I agree. That, that's a pretty... The only reason it wouldn't be a cover is if the Jets get it back for the last second cover. Uh, when, when the game's well out of hand. But I, they, the Rams should cover that line. They should. And pick number three, I'm going to take the Niners laying the three in Dallas against the Cowboys. The game that got flexed out to bring the Giants into prime time. And I think, just look at the two football teams talent-wise, take the logos off the helmets and tell me why the Niners are laying only three in this game. Because they're a much more complete football team. 
Dallas' defense is awful. They got a break last week playing a JV quarterback and Brandon Allen and the Bengals. I think this is a situation where the Niners are going to win this game big. And I think that this is a spot where they should have won both their Arizona games. They lost badly in the end of the Bills. They could have beaten Washington. The Chase Young fumble changed the game. I think this is one where Dallas is getting a little hyped up because they have one good win, and they're going to come out and get smoked at home. So give me the Niners, mine the three, pick three. I agree with that pick as well. Uh, I, the, the Niners, they've been ravaged by injuries probably worse than anything in the NFL, but uh, Shanahan and his staff have done an amazing job of keeping them competitive. Not only keeping them competitive, they've won some big games. Like you said, they beat the Rams, uh, they beat the Patriots. They beat the Rams twice, actually. They destroyed the Giants earlier in the year. Um, I mean, the Nick Mullins is horrendous, it looks like, which shouldn't surprise anybody. But the Cowboys also stink. So I think the 49ers and what Shanahan has going for them, that they should beat the Cowboys actually pretty easily as well. Yeah, so to reset the picks here, Justin has gone with the Chargers getting three and a half on Thursday against the Las Vegas Raiders. The Green Bay Packers laying eight and a half on Saturday at home against the Panthers. And the Miami Dolphins laying two and a half against the New England Patriots on Sunday afternoon. My picks all on Sunday. The Buccaneers laying six in Atlanta against the Falcons. The Rams laying 17 as the Jets go to over 14. And the 49ers laying three in Dallas against the Cowboys. Those are your picks for week number 15 on the podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined in this spot by Martino Puccio talking about the Jets and our last Jets pick spot of the season as we prepare to go to, at that point, 0-15 when the Browns come back to MetLife next week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the 0-16 season is well within your grasp. Uh, don't blow it and line up with Justin Fields instead of Lawrence. Not that Fields is good, too, but I think Lawrence is one of those generational guys that could actually help turn their fortunes around. Yeah, the way I look at it is Justin Fields is basically like taking a shot in that like Sam Darnold category where, where he's very good, but like you still have to develop him. Trevor Lawrence is in the Andrew Luck category where you get him, you know you're going to be very good very quickly. Totally agree. Uh, and when, when it comes to a coin flip with the Jets, as in someone they need to develop, it's the safer pick is they won't develop and then it'll be a bust. So go get Trevor Lawrence. Who's out? Yeah, only three more losses to go until this miserable season is over. And thankfully for me, I have a good alternative on Sunday because that's this, they're playing at 4 o'clock at the same time as the Chiefs Saints game. So there's not going to be a lot of Jets on my TV screen. Oh, perfect. That's, yeah, that's great. When you get to avoid your own team and, and they're that terrible, I, I know that feeling all too well. Yeah, I think I'll probably be able to watch the first quarter before the Chiefs game comes on. Now let's switch over. Yeah, that's, that's the, I think that's the way to go for sure. All right, Justin. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. So fun as always. Uh, stay safe with uh, this massive storm coming up, and yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Indeed. Up next, we're going to dive into our recap of The Mandalorian, Chapter 15, The Believer, with Alan Austin right after this.
All right, we are back here on the podcast talking the latest episode of The Mandalorian, Chapter 15, The Believer. Joining me today to talk about it. Guy we haven't actually talked to since Halloween. We did our Halloween pop culture draft. Alan Austin is back. Alan, how are you? Good, Mike. And my gosh, is that great music. It's fantastic music. I remember I told you about this show. I'm like, the music is incredible. And you were it's like, wow, this isn't, I think you told me, it's like, this is actually as good as you said it would be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a wonderful score. Yeah, the score is fantastic. And I don't know about you, but like one of my favorite parts of the episode is like when they play it over the credits and they show you like the, the artist renderings of like scenes in the episode. That's I always enjoy that. Yeah, it's got to be storyboard stuff that they just include in the end credits. And it's really, it's such a nice touch. And I guarantee you those pieces of art are going to be printed and sold and collected by Star Wars fans across the world. Yeah, they are. And I wanted to bring you on, Z, because you're a bit of a different case of a lot of these people. Because everybody I've had on, Z, watched the mailer from the beginning. You kind of took the different roads. You went the binge model. Why did you binge the show? Mike, I'm not very good at waiting for shows that I like. I get very frustrated with that. So usually I'll wait for a show to either come on Netflix, Netflix where I know I can binge it, or I wait for the season to wrap. That way I can watch it all in one, like, one boom period because that's what satisfies me more. I get very frustrated week to week. And after you, you binge watch shows in the past, like I binge watched Breaking Bad, I binge watched Better Call Saul, all these shows, you get in the habit of binge watching. So to wait a week is such a frustrating ordeal for me. So I usually try to wait, but now I'm caught up with Mandalorian and here I am anticipating next week's episode with the inability to patiently wait. Yeah, I think this show also, it's like, it's very different than some of the stars you've gotten of late. And I know you're a guy who's been in and out in the Star Wars. Who's like, you've seen the classics. You've seen some of the new ones. But, like, where do you, like, you feel like this is more of, like, what you were looking for out of Star Wars? Well, here's my thing with Star Wars. As a kid, I loved the original three, which are four, five, and six. I saw all of them in theaters because they did a re-release in the late 90s, I believe. Yeah, I remember that. Yep, I saw all of them in theaters, and I loved R2-D2, Boba Fett, and the Stormtrooper outfit, or costume, or uniform, whatever. Those always caught my eye as a kid. And the Mandalorian has droids, it has Boba Fett, and it has a lot of Stormtroopers. So this is like a series that lets me dig into what I really enjoyed as a child anyway. But as for the new movies, and the and the Prequels. first three chronologically, yeah. I hadn't seen any of them before. Fans across the internet had already ripped them apart, yeah. so it was hard for me to like go back and watch them when I already knew that Star Wars Star Wars fans were disappointed. Yeah, so I saw Attack of the Clones in IMAX, and the only reason I saw it was because my family wanted to see what an IMAX movie was all about back in the day. So I saw Attack of the Clones, and I saw the Rogue One, which I know is standalone, and I saw whatever the first one is of the newest batch. Oh, the Force Awakens. The Force Awakens, which I enjoyed. So I don't have a love-hate relationship with Star Wars. I relatively have a good relationship with Star Wars. I think part of it's because I avoided all the things that the true fans cannot stand. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Because I know the newest one was panned by Star Wars fans. Oh, I think nine was awful. I think I, I, I think I saw maybe one or two positive reviews, 
and they were more of the, oh, just enjoy it critique, which I never respect. Yeah, I think, my opinion, I think the one I'm curious to get your take on is, like, I would say for you, based on, like, how divided it was between the critics loved it and the, and the diehards hated it. I'd be curious to get your take on The Last Jedi. I think that's the one you should check out and let me know what you think of that. Oh, I, I plan on Now that they're all available on Disney, I have no excuse not to. And the fact that I enjoy The Mandalorian this much makes me want to go back and watch them now. Yeah. I think, like, I mean, episode one, episode nine, you kind of know what you're getting, that they're not going to be great. I think episode eight is like very polarizing. It's like I'm personally more high on it than most of the Star Wars fandom is, but I also see the arguments of like this is not what I signed up for when I signed up for Star Wars. And and keep in mind, my outside looking in viewpoint of Star Wars is that George Lucas has reconstructed the original three and added CGI, and then the CGI in the prequels isn't as clean. It's not that clean, and all this like critiques that are just like every reason why I shouldn't watch, but I still want to because I want to fully embrace the story and the world that was created. Yeah, indeed. And we'll talk about the world's created in the Mandalorian today. We're going to talk about chapter 15, the believer interesting episode title, but before we go any further, I'm going to play the good old fashioned spoiler warning. Okay, if you have not watched through Chapter 15, The Believer or The Mandalorian, get out. Go watch the episode if you, if you care about being spoiled. Otherwise, hang on with us. I will say, based on my expectations last week, I was talking to my friend Nick about what was going to happen. This is not the direction I thought that the episode would go in. No, this this episode... So, you, you had expressed to me that every episode was like, you know, it has the through line of The Mandalorian and the child, Grogu, but they also kind of solve the problem of the week. Yeah. And this is another problem of the week episode. But it, what I love about this show is that even the side characters have a journey they go on. They have an emotional connection to us, the audience. And Mayfield, the Bill Burr character, who's kind of, he's like, he's not the focus, he's not the sole focus, but we learn so much about him in this episode that when it ends, we're rooting for him. And he was such a bad guy in season one. So there's character growth and the scene, which we'll get to with the, the, his commanding officer, one of the better scenes in the show's run to this point, in my opinion. Yeah. I, in my personal opinion, first of all, two things are different. Number one, obviously for the first time since this show began, we have not had Grogu in a scene at all. Like he was completely absent this episode, which is unusual for this show. Actually, it's actually the Mandalorian about him, not about uh, Grogu as the, as the main character. And number two, I was talking to Nick last week, my friend, my friend who talked about this and we were saying, Hey, like this could be the episode where they know they go around planet to planet, build a team. They'll grab, May fell first, and they'll go find maybe Ahsoka Tano. They'll go find the man, other Mandalorians. But no, we spent the entire episode with Mayfell just trying to find Moff Gideon's location. I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, I mean, they stuck to their guns about him being a prisoner, and they let him escape. And I'm sure we'll run into Mayfield again some point down the road. But no, they're not forming a you know motley crew of all-stars to kind of take down Moff Gideon. And that, that's very interesting to me. It definitely is. And let's start the episode off. We start off with, we see Mayfell on the prison camp. Cara Dune comes in and says, hey, bends the rules, gets him out. And then I thought it was funny when when Slave One approaches, Boa Fett comes out first. Mayfell's like, oh, I thought you were I, I thought you were the other guy. And then Mando comes out and is like, I'll go back. I don't want to deal with you. 
Yeah, that was really funny. Yeah. And Bill Burr's timing has been impeccable in his two episodes. He's a guy who you would think maybe doesn't fit in the world, but there's a reason he got cast, and it's because he provides a levity and also at the same time an intensity that few can do. And look at Bill Burr go. What an actor. And he's great in The King of Staten Island as well, and I'm really enjoying his work off the comedy stage as much as I did when he was on it. Yeah, he was a, he was definitely the the MVP of this episode, and then we do see they go to the this this another planet to try and look, find information on Moff Gideon's ship and how to locate it. That was what Bill Burr's skill set was the first season, and we come we come to this planet, and, and Mayfeld tells us you have you can't have any real affiliation with the Imperial database. You can get in there, so Fennec obviously can't go because she's wanted by the Empire. Kara can't go because she's clearly Republic. Uh, Boa Fett's like, eh, they know my face, which is clearly a, a drawback, like, reference in the movie. So we end up with Mando and Mayfell basically going on a buddy cop mission for the whole episode. I think that was a fun choice. And interesting that the Mandalorian is like, re- and, and, and yes, Bill Burr is the MVP, but a lot of credit has to go to the Mandalorian for willingness to do whatever it takes to get the job done in this episode. And he has to swallow what it's more than pride, it's like a code that he has to go against by taking his helmet off for, for the child, essentially. And it just adds another layer to his character as well. And I feel like they're going to do he takes his helmet off one episode a season. I feel like that's kind of what they're going to go for. And the, the, there was no forcing of that issue. It was plot-driven. He had to take his helmet off, and it was great. And it was just such a good scene. And yeah, you're right. Uh, Mayfield is the MVP of this episode. He he gets in as many jams as he gets them out of, but it all works out in the end. And the Mandalorian putting on the dark stormtrooper uh, costume, you know, it adds another fun scene that us as fans can look back on and say that was different and still amazing. Yeah, we do have the the plot where they basically like Mando and Mayfield attack a convoy to and really pull a homage to episode four by just impersonating stormtroopers to get inside an Imperial base. And I think one of the fun things that I liked in there was the conversation that they were having in the convoy on their way down to the base. And May felt basically like the empire, the Repu- the Re- new Republic, they're all the same to me. And Mando's kind of sitting there silently. what do you think about Mayfeld's take on what was going on in the universe? I thought that was a very interesting social critique about, you know, a lot of, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but there was a lot of political undertones, not just for the U S but for around the world in that statement. Yeah. I, like you've got, you've got a lot going on. You got a lot to unpack in what he said there for sure. Yeah, you definitely do. And I mean, this is some, another line that also comes as a, it's a little bit of a callback to episode eight, which I know you haven't seen, but like there's a character in there who basically is a information hacker. He basically is like, you know what? Both sides are bad. Nobody is really a winner in this thing. I sort of like the attitude Mayfield has at this point in the episode. Yeah, and with, you know, them knowledgeable of the 2020 election, you know, slightly before the release of this episode, there's definitely a time timeliness to his sentiment. Yeah, I'm trying to look up because the... The character I'm trying to find out who, find the name of the guy because the act there's a pretty well known actor who played this character in episode eight because oh it was Benicio del Toro played this guy he basically is an information oh, okay. 
basically this information hacker and like the, the the members of the resistance. I think this was uh, Finn's mission episode eight. It was like he tracks down this guy to try and locate a like a, like a I forget what the reason was. They needed a guy something to hack a ship or track something, and he was the information guy. And he's like, look. These guys are buying weapons. They're the Republic is buying weapons. Like nobody wins, right? Yeah. So that's it, great. No, it, it adds layers and elements to everything in the world. It's not just good guy versus bad guy. There's so much more to it. There's a lot of gray areas, and we like that more as audience members. Yeah, we do, and we do get obviously we get our action. We get the great fight sequence where Mando has to go on top of the convoy and fight the pirates off. We're trying to basically blow up the com- blow up the convoy. I thought it was a fantastic fight scene, seeing Mando have to be out of his element, not have his usual armor to rely on, having to rely just on the blasters and his own physical skills. For sure, and it's one of the few scenes where Mando is like, he's about to give up, but he's not going to give up. He's just going to stand there, put his fists up, and hope for the best. And it reminded me of the Matterhorn, or whatever it was called, the the big horned monster, that before Grogu stopped him in season one, Mando just kind of stood there with his last, gasp so to speak and they they did that again here and then the triumphant you know the triumphant i don't know what the names of their ships are but they they they, tie fighters yeah the triumphant tie fighters saving the day with the glorious music which was a interesting choice as well yeah because man does get does hold them up but then eventually there's too many of them looks like they get blown all of a sudden we get the soaring music and you think oh maybe slave one's coming and say day. nope it's an army of tie fighters and stormtroopers which is the complete opposite of what you expect as a star wars band you're like we're playing the hero music for the bad guys yeah yeah it's very interesting and it's uh it's a nice touch because if the story is about the mandalorian and that's the moment that saves him you need to try him for music regardless of where it comes from yeah, and that was pretty cool. We see them like come in, and then man, like Mando and Mayfeld come in. Mayfeld takes his obviously had his helmet off, and he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna go into cafeteria, grab the information off the computer." But he chickens out because he sees his former boss. Mando steps up and says, "Hey, like, I'll take my helmet off and go and go see this and go take care of this." So this is, I think, by far the longest we have seen uh, Pedro Pascal without the helmet on the entire show. Yeah, I mean, see, when I think of Pedro Pascal. I think of mainly the Viper. I know he's been in a ton of other things, but like my strongest connection with him is the Viper in Game of Thrones. And, you know, Mandalorian's voice and the Viper's voice are very different. He uses very different accents. So I'm always like intrigued to see him use Mando's accent without the helmet on. I get very excited for it. And I just love him as an actor. So anytime he's got the helmet off, it's great. And in season one, he had it off for 10 seconds. Here, it's for a whole scene. And it's a really intense scene. So I was very pleased with everything I saw here. And the, the taking of the helmet off, like I said, did everything it took. And Mayfield was there to help him out in a, in a pinch. Yeah, because after it's done, the, the commander who Mayfield references before comes up to him and is like, and grilling Mando. And Mando has no poker face to scene. Like, he was literally about to, like, crap his pants. And you could tell, like, he has no ability to think on his feet in this spot. He's never had to have a poker face. Yeah, it's true. You can hide behind so, the helmet. Yeah, you hide behind the helmet. And uh, Mayfield, who's extremely witty and quick on his feet, you know, it's such a good scene. It's just such a good scene. 
It's a very fun scene. And then basically the, the commander is like, hey, you guys are the only combo we made in today. Hey, good job for you. Let's have a drink. And then this is one of the favorite, my, my favorite conversations of the whole episode is like when you slowly start to realize like how like terrible these Imperial people are and the Imperial thing is another one that's sort of coming like very real world political tones, this idea of like, hey, like people just want to be ruled. They don't care who rules them. They need leadership and they need like, Discipline, the Empire will come roaring back, and you slowly see Mayfeld turn against this against the Imperial beliefs here. I thought that was very interesting to see that change happen, and just like facially. It also, in a in a way, humanizes stormtroopers because you realize they're just guys who fought in a war for what they thought was the right cause, and they all died. Not all of them, but a good chunk. And you know, Bill Burr's Mayfield is there to kind of give them a pulse as just something more than you know, mindless henchmen. It, it adds an element that these stormtroopers, the bad guys, are, you know, not necessarily humans. I, I know there's like a blurred line of everyone's, you know, race and what creature they are, but it gives them human qualities. And we lose that in the past because we just see them as mindless henchmen, but Bill Burr's sitting there saying, hey, I lost friends, I lost family, families lost dads, families lost other family members, and so really interesting look at that if that makes any sense yeah it definitely does and we do get this moment that like and retrospect once you see bill Burr's facial expressions like change you kind of should see it coming but basically he kills the commander just like in the middle of the cafeteria like says and basically justifies man's like hey he saw your face he can't be allowed to live i thought it was a fun way to sort of justify that yeah it was great it was it was extremely witty yeah, it was witty. And then we get the the other great action sequence of this episode. We get the break, the prison, the break, break out from the base. We get a great, we get this great shot of them trying to escape on the walls. And we see everybody sort of doing their thing. We see Cara Dune and Fennec basically just sniping everybody left and right. We see these incredible like moves trying to go up the wall. Like They always have these incredible visual styles for how they want to set up these fight scenes. And I like that that's something different every time. Yeah, for sure. And, and, the first image that came to my mind during this was the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, which is probably dating me a little bit. But, you know, up on the waterfall in that movie, or the dam, and then you had this here. It just reminded me of that. Yeah, because I remember last week I was saying, I thought last week felt like they like a giant hand capture the flag where they were trying to defend Grogu being the flag and they were trying to defend that. Oh, this one like is very much, like you said, like going up a waterfall, vertical elements. I liked these different touches they had to these styles. Yeah, and it was the second could fall from a high vertical spot of the season because of the uh, volcano in the other episode. Yeah, indeed. And I did like, like obviously, everybody has the role play. Boa Fett comes in and hell of a shot by Mayfield with the with the sniper gun to basically wipe out the entire base. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. And, and again, it's a callback to his skill set. It is a tremendous callback to his skill set. And... At the end of the episode, we do have the fun, witty bit between Mando and Kara when they're talking to Mayfeld. Like, oh, too bad Mayfeld died in the in the uh, in the mission here, and he's just slowly pick up and he's like, oh, I can leave. I always I always wonder where people without ships go. Yeah, like where's he going? I know he's free, but what's he going to do? And and I was a little upset that Boba Fett's helmet was like clean and polished in this episode. I was hoping like the wear and tear the gear took would like give it more character. Like 
I wish it would stay in its like, let's say, uh, damaged state. Yeah, like it's got like character. Yeah, and uh, they clean and polish it up, which which I understand. But I was kind of hoping that it would be the way it's been to show that he's been through a lot. Yeah, definitely. He definitely has been through a lot, and. <laughs> We do end the episode. We do. I think this is probably one of the best moments of the entire thing. It sets you up perfectly for the finale where Mando sends a holographic message to Gideon Ship, wants to figure out how to track it, and basically says, like, I'm coming for you. Like, you and I are going to finish. I- I'm taking the kid back, and you're and you're not getting my way. And the look on Giancarlo Esposito's face in that scene, I think, was very well done. Very well done. And it's a very simple message. He gets his point across. He doesn't get too poetic about it. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, like, he doesn't do anything poetic. He just says, I'm coming for something that means more to me than you'll ever know. And there's no way you're going to stop me. It's great. It's great. Yeah. He's not chewing the scenery there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's a good place to end the episode. And I think it was pretty straightforward, the whole thing. But I thought it was a nice, enjoyable ride. And, and May felt sort of being the centerpiece was a very fun choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mando, we love him because he's Mando, but Bill Burr's Mayfield is able to provide a, a comic outlet that the show doesn't always have, although the show does have a lot of humor, but he just brings such a different, amped up, turned up to 11 element compared to everyone else in the show that it not only is it welcome, it's kind of needed at times. Yeah, and one thing I want to touch on before is, like, obviously this is our first episode without any Grogu presence in it, and the plot has sort of hinted that there may be a point where Mando and Grogu are separated. Considering we got a glimpse of what life without Grogu may be here, do you think there is a path for the show if we have Grogu disappear for a couple episodes to go go train to be a Jedi? Absolutely. I think the fans trust uh, John Favreau enough to give them quality in the absence, and you don't, you don't want Grogu to be that crutch. Because if the show is going to be, if it goes down as one of the best shows ever, it can't just be because everyone loves Grogu. It's got to be because everything else was as good as Grogu as well. So I do see a path. I do hope they don't fall into it as him being the crutch for the show. And if you keep doing episodes like this, it's great. Now, I love Grogu, obviously, and I want him to be around. But based on what you asked me, I do think there's enough quality to show they can afford a couple absences of Grogu. Yeah, the one thing I'm concerned about with this show is I know that they're doing a good job trying to tie in the canon of the of the other external Star Wars products, like especially Clone Wars and Rebels, have gotten a lot of attention, especially this season. But my worry is that this show is still called the Mandalorian. There are times it feels like Mando himself is sort of like a side character in his own story, in his own show, where it's like, oh. I, and he said this in, on the, in the episode. This is them sort of winking at it. It's like, hey, like I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what the backstory of this is. And I feel like in a way, he's an outlet for the audience to casualize to some degree. Right. I think it's wrong for us to assume that every character knows like everything. You know, that, yeah. that's, and the Mando is like, I don't really know anything besides what I know. Yeah. And yeah, there, I, look, it's Star Wars. They're going to shoehorn in stuff and you know, not everything is going to be as justified as the reason Boba Fett's back. So it's going to be what it is. And we just got to kind of either like it or hate it and see where it goes. I trust the creators enough to say, I think they know what they're doing and they won't just sell out completely, especially because 
Disney announced a truckload of new shows coming. Mandalorian doesn't have to carry the weight for all of them. Yeah, that's true. We'll get to that in a minute. And like my one point on that was just sort of like, I get that. It's like at the end of the day, the show is called The Mandalorian. Like I know we have exciting about all these great ideas. You can weave them in casually, but like, I just don't want them to forget. Like, I trust that they'll do this. Is like, don't get like get too far down the rabbit hole where like the audience is no like they always know things the main character doesn't. I don't like that approach to the show. I I agree with you. It's got to be its thing. If it tries too hard to set up to something else, and we lose com- what Mandalorian's been completely, that'll be a tragic, tragic off the rails kind of direction. It's kind of like, I think I want to say Iron Man 2 has this problem where, like, they're trying to set up so many elements of the MCU where they're like, they forget that it's actually supposed to be an Iron Man movie. Yeah, I could see that. I think uh, this, though, I think The Mandalorian is in better shape. I think that we, you know, it, a lot of it's fan service. And that if you let the fan service control the direction of the series, that's when that's when you lose us. And I think Star Wars fans are hip to that, and I don't think the creators will let that completely happen. Yeah, they. I don't. I trust Filoni and Favreau to make the right choices here, and we have a finale coming up. We did not get the kind of super team building here. I think we'll get a little bit of that. There might yada yada picking up a couple of people along the way, sort of help out. But I do think we're gonna end up with our big fight at the end between Gideon and Mando. I think we, my guess is Grogu ends up back with him and maybe we find out who was communicating with on Tython last episode. That's sort of our cliffhanger for the next season. Yeah, because uh, Rosario Dawson's character mentioned an, another big bad that's coming in the future. Yes, Thrawn. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I'm sure that the, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Moss Gideon's the casualty at the end of season. I know in season one, the big character who passed was Nick Nolte's character. Yeah, Keel. Yeah, and I think it'll be Gideon Moss this season, but with a new bad guy set up going forward. That would be an interesting tease. I also th- feel like there there are characters in the Star Wars universe that like could be fits to train Grogu. I would not be surprised if one of them pops their head up at the end of the season and say, I got the message, I'm here to help. For sure. Yeah. And I... I just hope that if uh, Moss Gideon sees Mandalorian pull up in a wheelchair ringing a bell, he gets out of there as soon as possible if he wants to live. Yeah, that's certainly true. And you mentioned before, I'll wrap here. I'm going to talk more about this next week in the Mandalorian finale and coverage. I'm going to get some of the previous guests back together. We're going to dive into the whole thing. Disney Plus basically dumped, it's basically they have all the Marvel, they have all the Star Wars, they have so many things going on. Like they had a big announcement the other day, basically took all the toys that they had. They would just dumped the toy box out and they're starting to play with them. They, they had so many different like shows and movies and stuff set up here. Star Wars is about 10 new show projects plus the plus a couple of new movies. We have spinoffs on the Mandalorian. There's the Ahsoka Tano show. There are ones we've heard about ones we hadn't heard about of all of these things that have come out, which one like you say, Ooh, I want to check that out. There are two in the Star Wars realm that really, make me want to see it. And it's droid story because I loved R2-D2 as a kid. So obviously I'm going to connect with that one. And uh, Lando, I think those are the two big ones from Star Wars that I'm very interested in. And I had a friend joke to me that it's a good thing they're making the Obi-Wan and 
a Vader show because we were, and this, I don't know. So you would vouch for this better than I, but they were supposed to be these great friends that turned, but there was no ever instances of them actually being friends. So this series will hopefully fill in the gap of their friendship. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I get, I get that sense as well because like they had to all their social like brothers and all of that. And we got like, maybe a smidgen of that in episode two and episode three, but not enough to really expand the relationship. And I like the idea of Star Wars going more in the show direction because there's so much rich tapestry here, but trying to jam everything in a two and a half hour movie is not really a good idea for them right now. And what do you think of them bringing back Hayden Christensen as Anakin? Like, I think it's not a bad call because, I mean, it's been so long since he was in there and he got maligned when he got cast the first time. But I feel like, Absolutely makes the hearts grow fonder than Star Wars fans. I feel like a lot of people were excited that he he's coming back. Oh, interesting, interesting. And, uh, you know, just to, because we're talking about the Disney toy box, I'm very much looking forward to Winter Soldier and the Falcon and Loki as well. Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm intrigued about the Nick Fury show, The Secret Invasion. That's one has got my interest. Yeah, and, and who is Ben Schwartz's character in the MCU? He plays one of the Skrulls. He first appeared in Captain Marvel, I I believe. It's like because like he was because it, I I'll get throw the spoiler warning up again for the people who have not have not seen Captain Marvel. I say I think actually he's not even Captain Marvel. I got the wrong movie. It's he, he appears in I think Spider Man. Actually, no, he's appears in Captain Marvel first, and then he shows up in Spider Man Far From Home because the whole movie we see that. Nick Fury and Maria Hill are helping Peter Parker try and deal with some sort of extraterrestrial threat. And we find out it's not an extraterrestrial threat. But at the end of the movie, it's revealed that, that Mendelssohn's character is basically playing as Nick Fury. Nick Fury's been out in space working on a separate project. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so like that's something that I think that aspect alone, and getting a little bit of backstory where Nick Fury has been when he left Earth, that's going to be cool. Yeah, no, I, I tell you, Disney... Disney has set the bar very high and I'm sure not all these shows will be the best, but if they can hit 60%, if they can hit six out of these 10, so the six out of every 10 are good, the fans will be happy. I thought that was about the hit rate of the Netflix MCU shows too, because like the, I remember Iron Fist was terrible. The Defenders was disappointing, but the other three are pretty good. Right, I heard good things about Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. Yeah, Luke, and Daredevil. Yeah, and Daredevil. Punisher wasn't bad either, but Iron Fist is an unmitigated disaster, and they sort of had no ideas for Defenders, which is disappointing. It is disappointing, and it's kind of doesn't it kind of take away from the canon if a show gets canceled after one season or they give up on it? Doesn't it feel uneven in a way? It kind of does, but you also got the sense that like. Disney was like, we're not going to let Netflix profit on our characters anymore. We'll just cancel all these. Sh- Netflix is like, we're not going to, let's go cancel all these shows. And Netflix, I think Disney's starting to bring some of these people back eventually. Interesting. Hey, Disney's on top of the world right now. And I, I honestly feel like even before this announcement, Disney plus was going to be Netflix's biggest competition. And now I think Netflix, Netflix is Disney's biggest competition with the announcement of all this. So the roles have reversed where I think right now Disney plus is probably the number one streaming service worldwide. It will be, especially after these shows get released. Yeah. And like, I mean, we've heard like speaking of like the Netflix stuff of like, this is something I'll probably talk a little bit more with John Snake, who is such not a fan of this idea because he loves into the spider verse. It sounds like 
like Disney and Sony are trying to do the live action version. And one of the big announcements that's kind of late, it sounds like that uh, Charlie Cox's Daredevil will be making his MCU big screen debut in that movie. Interesting. Which I love. A lot going on. Yeah, a lot going on. Because I was going to incorporate the other two Spider-Man franchises in this movie, which he's not a big fan of. And I think for me, if you get get Wilson Fisk as Kingpin back into the big screen movies of the villain, I think that's a great choice. Oh, it's it's a lot to play with. And I saw someone tweet the other day, do I need to see Spider-Man 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, and 1 to find out what's going on in the next one? And it made me laugh because it feels like Spider-Man has just been rebooted three times in the last 20 years. It really really has. It's incredible. And that's because they keep changing ownership company-wise, right? Was that the Spider-Man story? Well, the Spider-Man story is basically like like Marvel sold the rights to Spider-Man's films to Sony. So I basically had to reboot it every so often to keep the rights. So that's why after the fourth one, after the third Spider-Man in the Tobey Maguire series flopped, they sort of rebooted it. And then after the Garfield ones went went quickly kaput, they basically made the deal with Marvel with, MC, with Marvel and Studios saying, "Hey, like, you help us write the film, we'll co-finance it, and then we'll have the TV where basically share him." So, who's your favorite Spider-Man out of the three? It, it's clearly Holland to me. Yeah, I, I agree. He he embodies the character best, and he's most age appropriate. Yeah, because like. There were like by the end of the original Spider-Man trilogy, like Tobey Maguire playing like a twenty-year-old when he's like thirty-six is not really appealing to me. <laughs> uh, and the Venom is not canon, right? The Ven- Tom Hardy movie. Venom is not MCU canon. I think technically, like Sony's going to try and incorporate somehow, like down the line. But like, I don't know what the actual status of that is. It's sort of its own like adjacent universe, or like in the multiverse. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. A lot, lots of, and that's what we had spoken off air about the ability to keep up with Star Wars versus Marvel, and I think it's much more doable. Star Wars, yeah, because there's fewer movies. Yeah, yeah, it's like you only have to deal with like nine, nine main movies. Rogue One and Solo are nice; they're optional. The, the show, The Mandalorian, is the main show right now. If you want to go back and watch Clone Wars and Rebels, you can, but you don't have to. Like these, you like after a certain point with the movies, you're like you don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of a lot of big challenge. But Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be follow on social media. Keep on some of your other projects. Sure, it's Twitter at Alan A L L E N underscore Austin underscore, and on Instagram Alan Austin Sports. Yeah, you have any other prize you go on your remote? Yes, I uh, recently started a new podcast with a friend of mine called American Scene, S-C-E-N-E, where we discuss movies that use the word American in the title, and we kind of break down their their viewpoint on America through culture and statements, and we kind of, you know, just see if they earn their American title or what's American about them, and we've done American Pie so far, American Psycho, and a couple other films, so check that out. On Instagram, American Scene Pod, and Twitter, American Scene, and it's available on Spotify, Anchor, iTunes, all that. Yeah, when are you, when are you going to American Hustle? American Hustle is coming up soon, so stay tuned. Yeah, that one I want to check out. I I like that movie. It's it's uh it's literally going to be our next episode that drops. So oh, stay tuned. Send me yeah. a, send me a link to that. I will definitely ch- listen to that one. Awesome. Will do. All right. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Mike.
All right, that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Mike Vorkanov, for coming on to talk about the Knicks. I want to thank Justin Diaz doing the Week 15 NFL picks. I also want to thank Alan Austin for hopping on to the latest recap of The Mandalorian. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at the Brooklyn Nets season preview, because the Nets also have their own set of interesting storylines going on here, and they're right in the hunt for the playoffs, unlike the Knicks. Check out the blog over justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcatcher. You can find all our old episodes there. Feel free your feedback and star ratings as well. I'll make this podcast even better going forward. It means a lot, especially as we wrap up another year in the books. We're heading towards 2021. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. I also forgot to mention the YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Individual conversations on this episode are up there, including our conversation with Mike Vorkanov. That's going to be online in just a bit. Coming up next, we have a special bonus episode coming to you over the weekend. We have a Mandalorian finale special, putting a panel together, people. We talked about it during the season. We'll wrap up the year, a little Star Wars talk, and more. So I hope you have a better week than Giants fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.